Located just five kilometers south of the Syrian border, Abila of the Decapolis is a site with both significant cultural and historical interest, but also a site that holds significant promise for economic and touristic development in northern Jordan. Sadly, almost daily during our last few seasons of excavation, we've heard explosions, machine gun fire, and the sonic booms of fighter jets across the border in Syria. Of course, as John pointed out, our, the greatest sadness is for the people of Syria. But for those on this side of the border, there are also ramifications. Tourists often are reluctant to travel so near a zone of conflict, and even fielding a team of student volunteers for our excavation can sometimes be a challenge. Yet even so, the Jordanians have, have always, always, as always, have proved to be the most hospitable of hosts, and once our teams of archaeologists and student volunteers have arrived in Jordan, we've never felt unsafe in any way during our many years of excavation. And so our deepest thanks go to uh, the royal family, to the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities and Dr. Mundar Jamhawi and his staff. Also to the people of Harta, Jordan, where we live when we excavate. And I also want to add a word of thanks to David Kennedy and the Aerial Photographic Archive for Archaeology in the Middle East and the folks who work with him who've given us many uh, wonderful photos that I'll show you in just a minute. And also to John Brown University that, that helps support the work that we do. The excavation site is located in, the northern, in northern Jordan, approximately 20 kilometers east of the Jordan River and five kilometers south of the Yarmouk River. The site is, is approximately 20 kilometers north of the modern city of Irbid, and along with Pella, Gadera Umkais, uh, Capitolius Beit Ras, and to the east a bit further, Umal Jamal, form an important northern constellation of significant sites uh, in the north of Jordan. During the first two seasons of excavation at Abila, work centered on surveys of the site. The coverage of the initial survey in 1980 was deemed to include about 20% of the entire site, working out from what was thought to be the city center. Surface shirting provided evidence of consistent occupation from the early bronze right down to the middle Islamic periods. Thus, with a very long occupational history, Abil provides the modern archaeologist and cultural tourist with a wide array of historical, religious, and cultural opportunities for enrichment. During the summer of 1982, a regional survey was conducted at, that located the site within the broader, broader settlement patterns of the area. Among the findings were several farmsteads, a wine press, animal pens, many tombs, various cisterns, several water tunnels, among many other indicators that there was a substantial suburban population around Abila. Population estimates range from 10 to 15,000 people at its height, based primarily on the size of the urban footprint, water supplies, and the excavated tombs. After these initial surveys, excavation, excavation focused on the apex of the north and south tells, where it was clear that there was significant occupation. In time, excavation uncovered one large basilica on the north tell, two basilicas on the south tell, one more just east of the south tell, one more down by the Roman bridge east of the, east of the north tell. Uh, there's also what appears to be a Christian monastic complex in our theater cavia uh, that we are tentatively dating to the late 7th or early 8th century, and then a Roman bath complex. Work on the North Tell began in 1982, and it soon became clear that the structure was a Byzantine basilica with significant earlier and later use. In 1994, a life-size statue of Diana Artemis was uncovered, and so excavators have assumed that in a previous life, the area, the area was home to a Roman, te Roman temple dedicated to Diana. In addition, coins minted at Abila, all of which date between the middle of the second and the first quarter of the third century CE, commonly depict a large temple at the site. Most of the excavation in this area was completed during the 1990s, but one final season was needed in 2006 to answer a few lingering questions. Namely, our quest for some clear indication of Roman occupation. Uh, 
Uh, that season, we excavated a few sealed loci beneath the limestone paved plaza just south of the basilica and encountered clean late, late Roman pottery calls, dating that plaza at least to the period in which we have hypothesized there was a Roman temple. The structure on the north tell is a triapsidal basilica with all three apses facing east, measuring 35 meters from the outer edge of the central threshold to the outside edge of the central salient apse, and 20 meters from the <coughs> outside edges of the north-south walls. It appears that the church continued in use until the massive earthquake that struck the region in the middle of the 8th century, after which it was used for domestic occupation into the Abbasid period. Somewhat surprisingly, no dated inscriptions have been found in, the, in any of the five churches at Abila, and four of them, including the Area A church, have no ecclesiastical inscriptions whatsoever. The only inscription found in Area A was on what we called the Abila stone, a limestone fragment with the inscription that mentions Abila. The lack of datable inscriptions at the site has made sequencing the construction of the churches a very difficult task. The Area D church, located on the apex of the southern tell, uh, often called Umul Ahmed, was first excavated beginning in 1984. Initial squares located several capitals, a few with inscribed crosses, and numbers of tumbled columns. From the direction and lay of the tumbled columns and from depressions in the floor surfaces, uncovered in later seasons, the excavators concluded that the church was likely suffered catastrophic damage during the mid-8th century earthquake. As seasons progressed, the structure was determined to be a triapsidal church with, with all the apses facing east. The length of the sanctuary from the threshold to the outer edge of the central apse is 38 meters with a width of 20 meters, uh, slightly larger than the Area A church. A narthex extends three meters to the west of the western wall under a roof which is supported by four monumental columns. And an atrium extends six additional meters to the west along the south side of the structure. A number of pastophoria were located and excavated also. On the outer edge of the northwest of the church, the baptistry was found. The flooring beneath both the aisles and the nave is opus sectili, which you can see some there and here. Um, uh, the narthex and pastophoria and the baptistry have mosaic flooring, some of which contains designs of baskets of fruit, geometric designs, and floral motifs. In the, early, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, a team of restorers from Madaba worked to restore and preserve portions of the mosaic flooring. As in the Area A church, excavators determined that after the collapse of the structure in the mid-8th century, it was used for domestic occupation into the Abbasid period. During the 1992 season of excavation, what, while excavating along the western edge of the atrium of the Area D church, what appeared to be the top of a monumental staircase was visible from the surface. Upon further exploration, excavators landed upon an apse-shaped formation, and no evidence of a staircase was found. So work there was halted until the 1994 season, when excavation resumed under the label of Area DD. Work in Area DD uncovered a basilical structure measuring 19.5 meters from the threshold to the edge of the central apse and 15 meters from the edges of the north and south aisles. This is the smallest of the church structures at Abila. The north and south aisles were covered in a, in a carpet mosaic flooring, while the nave was paved with sheets of marble one meter by 60 centimeters and one centimeter thick large portions of which remained in situ. The structure is a triapsidal, is triapsidal, but curiously, unlike all the other triapsidal churches at Abila, um, where uh, in this church, all three apses are of identical size. I'm not aware of any other basilica in Jordan where the three apses are identical, and in Anne Michelle's corpus of Transjordanian churches and several other sources, uh, there are no parallels. 
In the center of the apse, we uncovered a stone inscribed to the cross that looked like it had been encircled with possibly some sort of semi-precious stones. Significant amounts of glass tessera were also found, red, blue, green, yellow, black, and some with gold leaf. Curiously, several stylobates were uncovered in situ, but there were no capitals, columns, or bases. And so we're assuming that this church probably fell into disuse in the 5th or 6th, early 6th century and was robbed out to build the church in Area D described previously. As with most of the churches at Abila, this structure also had significant domestic occupation after it ceased functioning as a church. We located both an upper and nether grindstone, uh, numbers of ash pits, several storage containers, as well as significant pottery dating to the Umayyad period and even more dating to the Abbasid period, indicating, including some whole Abbasid objects dating to the 9th and 10th centuries. Significant also was the finding of numbers of whole glass lamps, uh, and a bronze ewer with a handle in the shape of a panther or a leopard. These were sitting on 15 centimeters meters of soil above the church floor, and so our assumption was that they were from the church in Area D and were for some reason uh, stashed in the ruins of the Area D T church, probably, possibly at the mid-8th century earthquake. Work in the Area D D church was completed in 2006. Due east of the South Tell, another church structure was located in the year 2000 and was labeled Area G. Work there continues until today, and we expect that at least one more season of excavation will be needed to complete this area. This structure is Abila's only single apse ch church, measuring 29.5 meters from the west threshold to the outer edge of the apse, and 19.5 meters from the south to the north walls. A narthex of 14.5 meters was excavated during the 2000 and six and 2008 seasons. The pastophoria along the south of the church are still under excavation, and so its dimensions are not clear yet. Uh, the nave of the church, like that of the area DD church, was paved with marble. Uh, the north and south aisles were paved with opus sectili, uh, significant amounts of which remained in situ. Within the apse, we located, this is a reconstruction of the, of the floor surface, uh, within the apse we located a sarcophagus, which although it had, um, uh, it had all the ceiling stones in place, was empty when we uh, excavated it. A well-preserved ambo was situated along the southern edge of the nave, five meters west of the iconostasis. Regrettably, just a few months after our probe under the ambo was completed, uh, looters came and tore the whole piece or structure to pieces. Uh, the eastern end of the south aisle ends in an iconostasis, which is situated two meters from a flat wall, which presumably was decorated with icons in antiquity. Excavation during the 2012 and 2014 seasons focused on general cleanup of the area, including the removal of a number of bulks, and, and then the excavation of the attached rooms on the south side of the structure. This is a reconstruction of the church done by Taufi Kunaiti of the Department of Antiquities. Future work in this area will include significant conservation and restoration efforts. Future work in this area will include uh, significant re reconstruction efforts, especially to the um, opus sectili flooring uh, that's in C2. A final area of excavation that I will cover today is the basilica in what we call area E. 
This area was, the fir was first located in 1990, uh, and excavation has continued every season down to the present. We hope that with one or two more seasons of excavation, we'll be able to complete our work here. The church in Area E is a triapsidal, though unlike the other churches at Abila, this one has the north and south apses facing north and south respectively, in a cloverleaf or cruciform shape. The structure measures 25.4 meters from the threshold to the outer edge of the central apse, and 26.6 meters from the edges of the north and south walls of the sanctuary, being wider than it is long with four aisles and a nave. To the west of the narset, west, a narthex measuring 5.5 meters extends to the back retaining wall abutting the northern tell. Two cisterns were located in the narthex, one on the north and the other on the south sides. On the south of the structure, sorry, Along the south of the structure, the pastophoria were excavated, numbers of crosses were carved into the walls and columns, and interestingly, along the south wall, three statue niches were located. Two of them had been filled with plaster in antiquity, leaving only one open. In consultation with Bethany Walker and a few other scholars, I'm fairly certain that what we have is a mihrab, uh, that, that, and that since the entire structure was destroyed in the mid-8th century earthquake, it appears that we have the structure functioning as a place of worship for both Christians and Muslims simultaneously. Mattia Giudetti and Gideon Avni, among others, uh, have noted other examples of this phenomenon in Palestine and the Southern Levant, and so there are precedents elsewhere for this type of religious cross-fertilization. In the southwest corner of the structure, a chapel, chapel was located. The floor was paved with black and white checkerboard squares, and there was an iconostasis set up in the middle of the room adjacent to a small column. Um, Regrettably, uh, the day after we took this photograph, uh, looters came and smashed it. That's what, what was left of it the following day. Um, throughout the church, most of the floor surfaces were paved in sheets of marble, and on many of the standing walls, there were, were hooks for hanging marble facing also. A few, but not many, of the ashlars were uncovered with remains of plaster, painted plaster on them. During, during the 2010 season of excavation, irregularities observed on the eastern wall of the, of the structure led us to hypothesize about the phasing of the structure, and so a probe was taken three meters on the opposite side of the wall in the interior of the church. That probe landed on a paved mosaic surface, and so squares were opened in the north and south aisles that revealed what, is a, what we are fairly certain is an earlier church located one meter below the one that's being excavated. Crosses in the middle of the aisles, as well as an iconostasis, uh, with a cross in front of it, um, seemed to confirm such a view. Uh, no more work was done on this lower church because of the desire not to disturb the upper church. Various things have led us to conclude that the upper church was destroyed in the mid-8th century earthquake. That's uh, in the pastophoria of the lower church. Um, the lay of columns as they were being excavated, indentations in the floor surfaces, floor surfaces from ashlars that fell from a significant height that can be seen here, as well as numbers of whole objects, such as this green glazed pot, which was crushed under, crushed under falling debris, seems to confirm that the church was destroyed in the mid-8th century. One last issue that I'd like to talk about is the future of preservation, restoration, and presentation at Abila. The American excavation at Abila of the Decapolis began its work 35 years ago. The first 24 years were under the direction of W. Harold Mayer. Sadly, when he died in a car accident in 2004, uh, there, were, there was many as um, 10 to 12 areas under active excavation at the site, and none of those areas was completed at his death. When I took over as director in 2008, my goals were threefold. First, to First, to protect, preserve, and present the site through an organized plan of cultural resource management. Second, to complete the excavation of those areas of the site that, that were partially excavated. And third, to raise the funds needed to, to accomplish the, the previous two goals. 
Uh, let me handle these in reverse order. As we all know, the work that we do as archaeologists is very expensive, and with little, little to no direct income from any of our activities. Much of the work that we do with preservation, restoration, and presentation of the archaeological sites will only bear financial return, if any, off into the distant future, as tourists and industries are drawn to visit our sites and their communities. As archaeologists, though, we are used to taking the long perspective on these matters, and so the significant funds that we invest now, we trust, will bear fruit for generations to come. Toward that end, at my university, I've established a Jordan Studies Endowment to fund the excavation, preservation, and restoration and presentation of the excavation site at Abila and other activities related to Jordan more broadly. Uh, the goal was to raise a USD of $5 million toward that end. Toward that task, we have raised so far $2 million of that goal with the prospect of one more million, uh, hopefully within the next few years. These funds are set in an endowment which will provide for the funding of the work at Abila and related activities in perpetuity. Uh, none of these funds will be used for salaries of any kind. It will all be used for, for programming expenses. Uh, with a spending rate of 5% on the endowment, this means that we will have access to approximately $100,000 per year for the programs run by the Abila Archaeological Project. And as the endowment funds grow towards our goal of $5 million, so will our funding, again, in perpetuity. Uh, this is only a small step towards what is needed, but it is a start, I believe, and a very hopeful start. Second, in our, progress, in, in our progress to complete the areas of excavation that were begun by our team in the 1980s, we've currently completed the excavation of three of the Byzantine churches. Uh, the things that are in green are completed, the two that are in blue are in process, and the three in red have significant work, work remaining. Little by little, we will finish the work that was begun, and as we do, the final publications are either in the works or will be forthcoming. Good progress has, has been made on the final publication entitled The Churches of Abila, and we hope to have that volume in press soon. Some areas of the site, such as the Roman bath complex, are really beyond the scope of what our team will be able to handle without significant outside expertise. I hope that we will be able to work with the Department of Antiquities, along with the major universities in Jordan uh, and ACOR, to ensure that the excavation, preservation, and restoration of some of these more complicated and difficult structures at the site are done with excellence. Finally, the protection, preservation, and presentation of the site through an organized plan of cultural resource management is a daunting task. Uh, every season when we return to Jordan, there is more and more evidence of looting and destruction. Uh, even sometimes when we are present at the site, it is not uncommon for looters to come in the evenings and to dig. Uh, and this despite the presence of two or three guards armed with sticks and shovels and sometimes guns. Um, one of the problems that we have identified is that since the guardhouse at the site does not did not have electricity, the guards sometimes would not stay at the site as long as they were supposed to. As a small step to remedy the situation, in the summer of 2014, the excavation paid, paid 2,000 JD to provide for an electrical power line to be run from the Al-Waha Dam Road down to the guardhouse. This will allow the guards to have the basics of lights, a radio or a television, a refrigerator, and a way to charge their, their mobile phones. While those might seem like small things, uh, making the guardhouse a more livable space will, I believe, make a significant impact on the likelihood that the guards will be, be able and willing to protect the site from intruders. Better signage at the site is also a priority. Um, in the early 2000s, the Hearts of Charitable Society uh, raised funds to create signs for various areas at the excavation site. These are now faded and worn and desperately need to be replaced. I'm working with my university and will be in con consultation with the Department of Antiquities to design and acquire signage that will make the site a more attractive and educationally enriching experience for visitors. A sign such as this one at my university 
uh, could be installed for approximately 2,000 JD per sign. Uh, we'll work with the DOA as well as local partners to ensure that the signage that we, that we procure meets the approval of all parties and both beautifi beautifies and complements the site. And of course, our, our um, desire would be to find that in Jordan. There are other issues to be discussed as well, steps to involve the local community in taking ownership of their cultural heritage, the possibility of physical barriers, uh, uh, such as a fence around the site to prevent looters and thieves from entering, and the erection of shelters over the various uh, structures at the site to protect them from the weather and make them more tourist friendly. But my time is short, and so I'll end here, thanking you for your kind attention. Thank you so much. Any questions? Thank you so much. This is, this is a great initiative. I really liked it. I just would like to comment on the fence yeah. because I think it has been a common practice in Jordan to build fences and leave the site. And the fences are very uh, effective, especially in isolated sites to fence out tourists or interested yeah. uh, voyagers who yeah. wouldn't you know, dare to cross it but it would never stop a looter. Yeah. So I think it's counterproductive. The only thing which can really take off looters is interest of the local community. Yeah. They must really take care of their sites and have an interest to do so. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, we've worked with the Hearts of Charitable Society in the past, and they've been uh, very helpful in promoting, especially among the, the school children in Hearts and the surrounding communities, um, a, a love for their, for their site and for their cultural heritage, and, and we'll continue with that, of course. I have one. Well, uh, as far as we know, Abila is one of the decapitalist cities. If we visit Amman, we have Heraclius Temple. If we visit Jarash, we have Artemis, uh, for example, and Zeus Temple. How can we explain that we didn't have that uh, kind of temple at Abila? Yeah, probably on, on the North Tell, under the Area A church, is where we hypothesized that uh, a temple to Diana was located. We found the life-size statue, and so it's probably buried under there and probably will remain that way. Possibly. I'm not quite as familiar with the situation there, but yeah. Could be. Yeah. I was just wondering what sort of water supplies you, you had. You mentioned cisterns and... Uh, yeah, there's an extensive system of water tunnels that run from Ein Quelba to, to the site. Um, uh, extensive system of water tunnels. That's the primary way that water was brought to the site. All the churches have uh, major cisterns in them and in, in other located throughout the site elsewhere. There's, there's large cisterns as well. There's also a bath complex that's not been fully excavated in the middle of the site. Um, so there's extensive water system at Abila. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed for such an interesting presentation. I've got just two very short questions. Uh, I am very much interested in this kind of martyrium that you have got close built against the, the walls of the, of the theater. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what is the, the work that has been conducted there? And the second thing is, you know, this is a, a common problem we, we face everywhere, and especially in places isolated like, like yours, how to do something meanwhile we are excavating and we have got this night looting. Yeah. Uh, because afterwards we can, and we should, 
uh, feedback, but how to deal with this situation. I think this is something that is really outrageous. Yeah, um, with regard to the first comment, um, we have a theater caveat there. We have no architectural evidence that there was a theater, apart from the, the, the curious shaping of the side of the hill there. Uh, we found no seats, no, um, no evidence whatsoever of a theater. Um, it has been hypothesized in the past that the theater was completely dismantled in order to build possibly the Christian monastery in the Byzantine period uh, that sits in the middle of where the theater is right now. But we don't have any architectural evidence of a theater there. That monastery is built right up against the the edge of the of the hill there and so we stopped excavating there in the mid I think it was maybe the mid-1990s, late 1990s, because it became too dangerous um, at this point. Um, before long we'll begin excavating there again with a little bit, with a great deal of caution. With regard, the other question was about, yeah, I, I visited the site yesterday and when I arrived um, I know there's department folks here. There was no guard present, and there was a car driving around. Um, I saw uh, in the, at the, the western edge of our Area D church that you saw, there's a, um, one of the uh, stones at the, at the entrance to the church has an Arabic inscription on it. Someone had ripped that all up and had dug down about two meters um, looking for, I don't know, gold under this inscription, I guess. Um, and it's in direct line of sight of the guardhouse. I mean... Uh, you know, direct line of sight, and I don't, I don't know what to do about this. You know, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a long-term solution, and I think Bert de Vries has done a lot with Umal Jamal that we can all learn from, and other other sites as well, about involving the local community so that they they adopt this as their site, as their cultural heritage. Um, I think that's the only way. In in the long run, hopefully, they'll begin to see the the economic possibilities of having a wonderful excavation site there, a wonderful cultural heritage there that people want to come visit. But it's going to be a long-range solution. Um. Of what? Yeah. We do, yeah, we certainly do backfill over all the mosaics, any, any paved surfaces or, or have a few centimeters of sand and then soil on top of that. Um, on cisterns, we'll usually cap them with, with boulders or rocks, but that makes the, the looters want to, that's where they want to go, because they think we're hiding something the more we try to cover it up or uh, disguise it, but yeah. Thank you for the presentation, first of all. Sorry. Uh, is there any plan for the restoration or presentation of the tombs as well, of the painted tombs, or uh, is this entailing, I mean, or is focused only on the architectural remains? Right, right now, there, there's no plans to excavate in, to excavate in the tombs. Um, the excavation there stopped maybe in the mid-90s because as soon as the tombs are opened, they, they deteriorate very, very rapidly. So we have no plans to open any new tombs. The ones that have been excavated, there's been some restoration work done there, but it's, they, they deteriorate very, very quickly. And so it's, it's been a difficult thing. So it's not planned? Well, it, it, it will be done on the ones that are open, uh, but it's not, there's not a, a plan right now. We've not done anything with the tombs for at least a decade or more. <laughs> 